This is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Scott Bertram. We're joined now by Christopher Buskirk. He is publisher and editor of American Greatness and author of the new book, America and the Art of the Possible, Restoring National Vitality in an Age of Decay. Christopher, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. The book begins with a question, and that is for a country that is so tied to the idea of progress through time, what happens when the progress stops? Would you argue that is where we stand right now? Uh, it is what I argue. In fact, I spent, as you know, you read the book. Uh, a lot of a lot of interviewers don't, um, and you've done it, but you know that I spend about half the book um, arguing that uh, that that's exactly what has happened uh, over the past sort of fifty years. And when I when I talk about progress, just um, so because I know for people who are um, sort of politically minded, for some people that makes them itch a little bit. When I when I talk about progress in the book, it's not sort of um, you know, it's, I'm not talking about like Wilsonian progressivism. What, I, what I'm talking about is is things that are more tangible. Mm-hmm. Is um, the sort of progress that really made, legitimately made America great. There was technological progress. There was um, there, there was progress as we were um, building a country. You know, sort of moving from 13 colonies clinging to the Atlantic coast and then moving west across. North America and building, you know, new cities and a, and a civilization as we went. That was, that was real and tangible. And we, you know, as a, as a country, we were, we were all a part of that or our ancestors were all a part of that as they were, as they were doing that. And, uh, my, what my argument is that a lot of those things just, they just stopped. Um, the technical progress, uh, stopped. And so we, you know, we haven't had the sort of, Productivity increases that increase living standards. You know, those, that a lot of there was a lot of that for from the industrial revolution till about 1970, and then it really slowed down. And of course, we had a frontier mm-hmm. um, in this country mm-hmm. uh, that that and that ended. You know, when we get to the Pacific, it literally you literally were just run out of frontier. There's an <laughs> ocean there, and uh, it, those things all changed the country. There are a few themes that run through the book, and I'll hit on a few. But but one. Uh, that is that is present from the start is this discussion about a fading sense of national identity and purpose and what that has done to the country. But is that fading accidental or is it intentional? Mm. Um, can I? It, yeah, it, it both. I think um, you know, some of it is is literally nat- natural. When I think of, when we think about um, being a frontier nation and that really the frontier really did help define the way who America is, what America is, the way we think about ourselves. You know, at a certain point, the frontier was bound to close if we did our jobs, and Americans did do their jobs. Um, and so that part of it was, was in a sense, natural. Um, as I say, by the, t- well, by the time you get to Santa Monica, you mm-hmm. just run out of frontier there. Right. Um, th- there's, a, there's another element of it where it's definitely, I think, not... Um, intentional when you, when I talk about like tech innovation, um, and, and for people who are, you know, for, for people who are just listening, just to be, just so I'm really clear about what I'm talking about, I, you know, I always, when I talk about tech innovation, I'm talking about the things, not just Silicon Valley, but the sort of things that have been going on since the mid 18th century. Um, you know, where you, you were, people were inventing things, um, that allowed, uh, us to do more with less. 
you know, for, for every hour of work, you used to get one widget, and now you get 10 widgets. So it's that sort of thing. And, you know, that went through its different iterations. You had the Industrial Revolution in the 1700s, and there's a different version of it in the 1900s when you had, like, a steam engine, and mm-hmm. then you have, like, sort of an energy revolution when oil uh, and gas becomes the predominant uh, source of energy with the combustion engine. Um, and, you know, just we don't quite, I think, and unless we sit down and think about it for a second, don't quite appreciate what a big deal those things were. Like, there's a huge difference between plowing a field with a yeah. with a horse and plowing a field with a tractor. Even a even a hundred year old tractor um, with an engine in it was vastly more productive than plowing with a horse. And those sorts of big, big advances where you had not a ten percent improvement but like a hundred percent or a 500 percent improvement. Like we haven't seen those sorts of advances. And I don't think that slowdown was intentional. Um, why that happened is a subject of, of debate. Uh, I think there's a part of it that, you know, maybe, maybe the easy stuff we already found out. That's one argument like that. We ate the low hanging fruit. Huh. Took us a couple hundred years to do it, but maybe, but there's another part of it where I think it is the byproduct of something that is intentional. And that is like, we do have this really stifling conformity. Um, it, it, it's used to be called political correctness. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's called woke. Um, these are, you know, these are cuts on the same phenomena, but you know, the, the sort of progress that I'm talking about where people are innovating and doing new and beneficial things, like you basically have to be the sort of person that says, Hey, everybody, you're doing it wrong, and I can do it better. Mm-hmm. Like, that's sort of a contrary person, right? <laughs> and the conformity that we have in the academy and the conformity that we have in sciences, um, it really has, I think, demonstrably uh, stifled the people who would normally, or in a, in a different era, had led the way forward. In a couple places in the book, uh, Chris, you, you talk about this being a risk averse society and people opting for security over risk and contrast that to the days of the frontier in the West where it was do or die almost every day. This stifling nature you talk about, is it uh, somewhat uh, our nature too, for whatever reason, now that we accept the security over the risk risk taking? Uh, For 100%, yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, one of the, one of the things that I think people don't appreciate, but when you when you sit down and I, I I talk about this in the book, but is that risk aversion when it sort of goes beyond a certain point, and we are well past this point. But the, the risk aversion when it goes beyond a, a certain point, it actually increases risk. You're no longer decreasing risk. You're actually making things riskier because you're trying to optimize for zero risk, and in doing so, you're doing things that make life worse mm-hmm. and make life more susceptible um, to decay and to collapse. And, you know, and then when, when you're looking at it at a, at a society-wide or a civilization-wide um, uh, uh, in that type of a framing. And it's, it's actually quite dangerous. I mean, we yeah. saw this as an example I, when I was, you know, I, I don't think I, I can't recall, but I don't, I don't think I said this in the book, but, you know, one of the, one of the best and saddest examples of like pathological risk aversion that we saw is shutting down the entire world over COVID, mm-hmm. right? That produced, there was, nobody wants to get sick, obviously, right? Nobody likes it. Um, but to think that we could eliminate the risk of 
a virus by locking 8 billion people in their houses for months or in some countries years at a time was absurd. And it, the, the, the number of negative outcomes that were the result of that is, I think that is, I think it's yet to even be accounted for. And we know how bad it was. Christopher Buskirk is with us. His new book is America and the Art of the Possible, Restoring National Vitality in an Age of Decay. You introduce these three metrics of vitality, you say, social, economic, and political. Touch on some of those here. On a social measure, social metric, you write, when sense-making institutions don't reinforce the nation's culture and are at odds with the permanent features of life, they create a conflict for those with strong families and active faith. What about those people who don't have strong families and don't have at active faith. What happens to them? Uh, no, the short answer is nothing good. Is um, when, when I talk about sense making institutions, just just so folks who are listening are clear on what I'm thinking about, it's it's the, those institutions in every society that occupy the high places of sort of telling people what to think um, and, and you know and how to think about things. There, it's it's educational institutions, whether it be elementary schools or high schools or, or, or the higher academy, the colleges and universities, you know, those are sense-making institutions. Um, media is uh, a modern invention, but it is a sense-making institution. It tells, you know, you turn on the TV, you pick up a newspaper, or you click on a site, and there's uh, there's an explanation that not just this happened, but this is what it means, or this there's some... Uh, uh, there's some sense-making valence attached to it. Government does this. Government tells, passes laws that say what's acceptable and not acceptable. And when, and this is you know to your earlier question about was were these things intentional? This is where there is some intentionality. The sense-making institutions uh, in our country and in the West in general have made it their mission to try and create a world that is at odds with. With the natural order of things, with the natural hierarchies that exist in life, because they don't believe in those hierarchies, they think those are wrong. Um, and I, was, I say to I say to folks, and I'll say it, I'll say it to you, is that you know this is basically the oldest, the oldest conflict in human life. I mean, this was basically the temptation of Eve, which is you know if you eat of the if you eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, then you will be like God. And what that means, what that really means is you're going to elevate yourself mm-hmm. above the creator. And that's what, that's what, what, that's what these sense making institutions are trying to do. And so you know, when people are able to reduce, um, the ill effects of that, when they maintain the, their own micro institutions, you know, the little platoons, the families, mm-hmm. right? When people have strong families, they're able to really protect themselves, not a hundred percent, but to insulate themselves from the ill effects that, uh, that, 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 that these sociopathic institutions have. But for the people who don't, and there are a lot of people who don't, uh, those people really are that like, they are really in for it, like, because they don't have that protective, uh, mechanism around them. And the result is, is that they get, they, they really get beat up by the society at large because they're the ones who are most attached to the third party sense making institutions as opposed to the primary, like the, the most natural sense making institution in human existence, which is the family.
On the economic metric, you make an interesting argument surrounding politics. Uh, democratic equality depends on economic growth, you say. And earlier, you, you go through this idea that we are stuck, we are, we are stagnated when it comes to the economy. You say stagnation is experienced not just as unfulfilled expectations, but also as a broken promise. Does that broken promise lead us to bitterness? And does that help explain the ferocity of some of our political disagreements? Uh, absolutely it does. I mean, it is, it is definitely the case that it, there is a, an explicit promise in America that is in part, um, you know, we talk about it often as the American dream, but the, the, a big part of that, um, and the way we understand ourselves is that you and I will do better in life than our parents and our kids will do better than we do. And that that is kind of life marches on in an unending stream in which the next generation is able to do better than their parents. And that is, that is fundamentally a, 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 an economic, you know, it is basically a material element of life that we're talking about that, that, that people are thinking about when they say that is, you know, their, their living standards are go, are going to rise. Um, and when living standards don't rise, when they or when they stagnate, and living standards only we should understand, living standards only rise really two ways. One is as a result of uh, technological process that allows you to do more with less, right? That's the definition of a rising living standard. Or, and that we've seen this in human history too. The other way you do is the other way a society gets richer is by plundering other societies. Like they take the wealth of other societies. Mercantilism is a form, is, is a name for a form of this. But this is, um, this is another way that living standards, uh, rise. But when in the United States, the way we understand life here is that you, you, we, we innovate, we grow, we have this fantastic country, which we do, mm -hmm. and things keep getting better. But when the, when the, when the tech innovation stops, in other words, when we, when we stop having those advances um, that allow us to do more with less, that means that the that the aggregate wealth stops increasing the way it had in the past too. Which means that in the aggregate, it's just not possible for everybody to do better, you know, from generation to generation because the pie isn't growing that way anymore. And that does that that is like that is not, I think, destructive in and of itself accept it when it's experienced as a broken promise because people have planned their lives around that expectation mm -hmm. that's when you really see these um you, you see that sublimated into political polarization into cultural conflict and there's this this is not the only explanation for why those things happen but i do think it is a part of the explanation for why we're experiencing those things in our country Christopher Buskirk is with us. America and the Art of the Possible is his new book. I want to spend our last couple of minutes uh, getting towards some of the ideas and potential solutions. But before you even get there, you spend some time talking about the difference that a small, dedicated minority can make uh, in contributing to what you call the golden age and where these seedbeds of renewal can come from. Where do we find these little minorities, these smaller minorities that can enact change and move us toward a better place? 
Yeah, it's uh, this was one of the when I was writing the book. I have to tell you, like this was one of the most fun parts to to research and to write. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like a famous saying, but you know, history is made by dedicated minorities, and that's just that's just a fact of history. And I go through some examples. Like I was talking earlier about the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution was a product of a very small group of people in northern England, in uh, in Lancashire primarily, but not exclusively. We're not talking about we're not talking about even thousands of people. We're talking about tens of people, um, not, not tens of thousands, tens, like a two-digit <laughs> number uh, group of people who were responsible for. Every single one of those uh, innovations uh, that that gave rise to the Industrial Revolution in England between, say, like 1750 and 1800. Same thing with the Scottish Enlightenment, which was roughly, uh, which occurred roughly at the same time. Interesting factoid about that because you had there was a there was a more of a like a uh, an intellectual element of the Scottish Enlightenment. Adam Smith and David Hume and, and, and those people, but there was also you know there was also like a there was also a science uh, and tech element, you know, modern science of geology, a mm-hmm. lot of um, more modern chemistry was created at that time. There were literally about 25 people who were responsible for that. They, their lives all overlapped, and they were, every single one of them were the member of one or two private social clubs in Edinburgh at the time. They all knew each other and socialized <laughs> with each other, uh, which I find totally fascinating, because that pattern is repeated over and over again you look at the Amer- at the american experience you see that too that benjamin franklin founded uh an organization called the junto society uh in the 1720s it ultimately became the american philosophical society which was a very small society around the the time of the american revolution um but most of the major founders were members in other words, they were all part of this intellectual endeavor together, this club. And that's, uh, and that was really, uh, informed the way I thought about things that we could do today to try and inaugurate a new era of American vitality, which was you don't know who those people are necessarily or where they are, but what we want to be very intentional about is giving those sorts of smaller communities a lot of a encouragement and be a lot of room um to grow so that they aren't you know i was talking earlier about that like stifling conformity Mm -hmm. like we need to be very intentional as a country about giving people space in order to create these sorts of communities they might be faith-based communities they might just be intellectual-based communities but they might be political in some way and one of my proposals is that we try and build new cities that operate under a different legal rubric that gives them the room to expand or to experiment. Um, But we want to be intentional about trying to create space for the, for these communities to, to form and giving them the room to run and to innovate because it'll be that, that really is the hope. It'll be those sorts of smaller communities that lead the way forward. And the final chapter calls at us to, stake out these large and ambitious goals focused on bringing material improvements to American life. Powering the future, life and health, America 100 is one of the goals you lay out here. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the the teaching, learning, doing. How do we instill this sort of um, non-risk-averse behavior 
into those who will be doing it in the future. I think, you know, it's interesting. It's part of, I think really part of that is, you know, there's a, the action part of it is to, is to, is to stake out tangible goals that are, that are big and they're audacious. But the predicate to that, you know, before anybody even wants to do that, you have to identify things that are really desirable, that people that are charismatic, that people would agree. Yeah. Like that God, if we could achieve that, that would be, that would be awesome. That would be fantastic. And it needs to be a stretch goal. So you talk about like America 100, which is a, what the name I give to a proposal I have in the, in, in the book. America, what we have experienced in this country in the past 10 or so years is that we have had median life expectancy for Americans declining. Hmm. Okay. It's the first time it's happened in our history. And the CDC released a couple of weeks ago, they released the, the 2022 median life expectancy for Americans, which is 75.3 years. That's another decline. Okay. It's been going down. This is not an anomaly. It's been going down for 10 years. And, um, that obviously is bad. Like you don't have to convince people that people lead, leading shorter lives is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it is tied to that. Related to that is the fact that the incidence of chronic disease has been increasing in our country. Inflammatory diseases like heart disease, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, these sorts of things. These things continue to rise. So not only are people not living as long, as they get older, they're sicker than they used to be, too. Um, now, lest somebody think, well, that maybe that's just a modern condition or, you know, this got, if that's happening, that's bad, but it's happening every place. It's not happening every place. Uh, you know, I contrast this. I didn't do this in, in the book. I probably should have, but I contrast this with, with France, hmm. uh, which is, by the way, not that dissimilar from other peer countries in Western Europe. France's median life expectancy has been increasing over the same period. It's now stands at about 80.5 years. Okay. And their incidence of chronic disease is lower than Americans. Um, and so what I say is like, number one, we need to change the trajectory. Like we want, this is like very tangible and desirable. American, we want Americans to live longer and we want them to be healthier as they're living longer. That's, I think is what you would call a self-evident truth. Everybody wants that. And so I said, let's stake out an audacious goal, America 100. Let us make it a national priority that over the, the next generation or two, we change the trajectory so that people start living longer. And the ultimate goal is we want the median life expectancy for Americans to be 100, and we want them to be healthy in their old age. That seems like something that's worth doing. And if you have a country in which people are living longer and healthier, I think almost by definition, you have a pretty vital mm-hmm. civilization versus one like what we have right now where people are their life expectancies are declining and they're sicker like that those are that's a contrast that i think people immediately understand yes that's worth doing and so i think we need to stake out big goals like this but also things that are pretty obvious Mm -hmm. they're obviously good for everybody christopher buzzkirk his new book america and the art of the possible restoring national vitality in an age of decay christopher thanks so much for joining us I appreciate it. Thank you. More of our interviews and conversations through our website, RadioFreeHillsdale.com. Click on the Student Shows and Features tab. And I'm Scott Bertram on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM.